0: Today we're concluding the series that we started five weeks ago on fixed and free and talking about the temple and the tabernacle uh, metaphors in discussing matters related to our denomination. Now what has prompted these discussions has been the fact that there are divisions in our denomination as has been the case with many of the mainline denominations largely focused on the matters of human sexuality. But the severity and the weariness of our disagreements lead some in the church to see separation as really the only possible resolution. Now some feel that divorce in the church is the healthiest and most sensible outcome. I'm talking about this issue within the church so that both sides can pursue their ministry related to their convictions. I have a United Methodist pastor friend who has gone through a divorce and testifies to how he and his ex-wife and their children live out their new reality as a family. He said, even in the wake of divorce where ex-spouses consider their marriage to be irrevocably separated, it is the children of the divorce who must reimagine the unity of their family and push all of its members to consider new ways that they are still one family together. Now what does that say to the larger church I think it begs a question really, who will be the children within the church speaking for unity of our United Methodist family in the midst of separation and what will be the United Methodist family and what will it look like in 2019? Today I have two passages of scripture that I'd like to read. And whether united, you're a United Methodist or not, I want us to hear this message as Christians related to our call, one with another, for unity in the church and why unity is so important. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew, the fifth chapter, the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus In the 5th chapter beginning with the 14th verse. And I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus said to his kids, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. And no one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket but on the lamp stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And now turn over to Philippians, the second chapter. Paul's writing to the Philippian church, and the Philippian church is his pet church. He loved the Philippian church, but he always, as a pastor, had to deal with unity and keeping unity within all of his churches. But in this case, he's addressing the Philippians, beginning with the first verse. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love and sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy... who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, Just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring or arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine, listen to this, you shine like stars in the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In 1939, A man named John Mott was awarded the Boy Scouts Coveted Silver Beaver Award. John Mott. As a student at Cornell University after a childhood in Iowa, Mott became a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And his evangelical conversion experience took place after he heard a speech from a young man a college athlete, Christian, named J.E.K. Studd. He was part of a group called the Cambridge Seven. And when J.E.K. gave his address, John R. Mott was convinced that he wanted to be a follower of Christ. This stud was probably the, uh, the equivalent of a Tim Tebow in his day. But when Mott heard that message, through these men, it prompted him to a life committed to service with young people. Though he was committed to scouting, as was the award given to him for that purpose, he also was very instrumental in the spread of the YMCA throughout the world and also the World Student Christian Federation, the WSCF. He was also awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in nineteen. 19- for his work in World War I and also for his work with youth and primarily for his constant message of unity. Perhaps the most important address that he ever gave to a group of Methodists was an audience that had gathered in 1939 at the Uniting Conference in Kansas City, Missouri. John R. Mott was given the charge that as the United, or the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South and the Methodist Protestant Church were coming together trying to unite and merge, Stott was given the important role of trying to merge these three Methodist denominations into one mission approach. Mott's final winning plea was this. We Christians are summoned not only to what I call the united front and the great advance in mission, but we are summoned, I think, as never before, to great acts of trust. First trust in what we have called her, the church, and her an. Un- erring guiding principles that I maintain have never led the organization or a Christian into a blind alley. Great acts of trust for one another are called for. And then he continues, Is there any reason, he said to the Methodists, why the Christian forces of today should not unite and concentrate as never before on the areas of population and of human relationships which has not been brought together under the sway of Christ. Only as we thus transcend our denominational, our party, our national, our racial boundaries and barriers can we hope to fulfill the mandate of our Lord. The time is ripe for the great and striking emphasis upon the kingdom of God as preached by Jesus. The Christian emphasis shall be truly relevant to present-day needs and conditions which shall dominate all other considerations and incentive and which shall become contagious and irresistible. What Mott was calling the Methodist and really to a larger degree all of Christendom is to the same call that Jesus has to you and I, the kids of the kingdom. To be a beacon. To be a light. To be a city set on the hill for all the world to see to give glory to God our Father. And and as Paul put it, to be like those stars that you can see from everywhere. Now Tom Shipp was the pastor here at Lover's Lane when Lover's Lane got into scouting ministry because he was the pastor here for 31 years. And Tom was so impactful that this church, Lover's Lane, grew from a little church that met in a house to a church that grew to be 8,200 members and was the fourth largest Methodist church in the connection. His story was powerful because he built a church that was a church that was open to all people, especially to those who were dealing with matters of addiction to alcohol. He was instrumental in bringing AA to Dallas. And those who were considered to be outcasts by the church and drunks were invited into the church at Lover's Lane to be part of recovery through the church. Now Tom Shipp, his story was impactful and it not only impacted this congregation but the larger greater Dallas area and even internationally he was known. In 1960 he gave the International AA um, um, keynote address to begin that convention. But his story was one of growing up an orphan with no real hope of ever going to college. He didn't graduate even near the top of his class. But there was a little college in southern Missouri called Drury College that gave a scholarship to the head of the class. And the head of the class didn't want to go to Drury. And neither did the one in second place or third or fourth. It got all the way down to Tom. And they offered Tom a scholarship to Drury College. And he said, I'm in. And amazingly, this poor orphan boy got to go to college. And then he received a call into ministry. And he ends up here in Dallas and at SMU and seminary. And then he starts this little startup church in a, in a house on Lover's Lane. You know, all Tom Ship ever wanted in a church was to be a church, as he said, at the age of 27 when he dedicated the first building on Lover's Lane, the Wallace Chapel. He said, I want to build a church where there are no shams, no make-believes, no halfway measures, true friends of others. And loyal to Jesus. That's it. That's all he wanted to do. And the little chapel they built on Lover's Lane was so small. I mean, they filled it up the first Sunday. Had to have three services until they could build other buildings. Because building a church of no shams, no make-believes, no halfway measures, a church of true friends of others and loyal to Jesus was quite popular. Now in the spring of 1939, Tom and two other college ministerial students took a drive to Kansas City to the Uniting Conference where these three Methodist groups were coming together. And during the conference, Tom's ship had an experience that literally changed his life and impacted yours and mine. Tom describes this experience in his very last sermon before he died on a Thursday in 1977. The Sunday before he died, he wrote this. It was a great conference, the Uniting Conference, bringing Methodists together. I particularly remember one evening when John R. one of the great Methodist laymen gave a sermon and at the close of his message he gave an invitation to the youth who were there to come forward if they wanted to dedicate their life to full time Christian service he said I had ridden to Kansas City with two ministerial students But I felt such a call on my life that I got up and I walked down that aisle along with a great number of other young men and women. And at that time, I wanted more than anything else to have some unique place in the service of the Christian church. I was hungry and open to know all I could about God and what was happening. This man, John R. Stott, who delivered this message on unity was so attractive not only to Tom Shipp, thanks be to God, but to so many other young people who made a commitment that day. We should learn from the past that the word of unity around a common mission is a word that brings people together. It's a word, unity, that's like that beacon, like that light, like that city set on the hill, like the stars in the sky that underscores the mission of the church. Friends, the the Methodist church had a big split in in 1844. North and south we divided. And 16 years later, there was a civil war And all of this was largely revolving around a single issue. What was it? Slavery. And in 1908, we had our last division. Right here in North Texas, in Pilot Point, Texas, the Church of the Nazarene was formed out of the Methodist Episcopal Church South. It's been 110 years since our denomination has had a division. The history beyond that point was in 1939, bringing three denominations together. And then right here in Dallas in 1968, Lover's Lane and Tom Ship were part of the hosting committee that welcomed the Methodist Church and the United Evangelical Brethren Church to come together and to form the United Methodist Church. Today, Lover's Lane stands as a beacon, as a light, as that city set on the hill as the stars in the sky. For our denomination. Why? Because we didn't just bring these flags in this morning. Did we scouts? Because they looked good. And they represented scouting. They represent the 20 or so nationalities. Represented in the body of Christ called Lover's Lane. And this church has been a church that in the midst of our diversity and our multiculturalism is still a church that embraces a Wesleyan, traditional, orthodox faith where most of our members come by profession of faith and through baptism. And our commitment to social justice and to ministry and outreach is supreme in all that we do. May it always be so. You know, names that I own as your pastor are traditional, evangelical, Wesleyan evangelical, orthodox. I'm also, as your pastor, I'm committed to social justice and human equality and diversity and multiculturalism. There's no statistic in the church that's more important to me than the statistic of of profession of faith commitments and how many people we have involved in missions. You know, there is nothing more important to me as your pastor is to have a church that is a sacred harmony of God's people. Culturally diverse and humanly multifaceted. May we be as passionate about our mission of loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ as we are about our vision of being one diverse community, passionately engaging the Bible, uplifting Jesus in worship and loving service, and challenging in love that which divides. Friends, in a world that is so divided, and our world is divided today, When we see these divisions and these cultural tears, with people, especially young people, looking for spiritual life and an authentic, focused mission where they can get involved in helping others, the word of unity has never been more important. Working together across the aisles, so to speak. And, and much better than our politicians is the call of the church. And, and we are a church that, it said, has 30,000 different denominations. And, and, and like Scott um, Gilliland said this morning, I, I doubt that, that if we become two churches or three churches, that God will say, well, that's it. 30,003, that's the perfect combination. The kingdom of God is at hand. But sincerely, respecting others, even others that have different opinions. And in a church like ours, there's lots of opinions. To say we can still worship together one God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, and do so in such a way that the mission is the driving force and the vision is what we desire our future to be. The United Methodists do not become weaker or dismiss the power of God's Word in Holy Scripture if we choose unity. Those bent toward the temple And seeing God is unchanging and God's holy word is being um, so um, important that we, we don't change the way it states everything. They make this Methodist tent more powerful. And those of a a tabernacle perspective that see the need for changes related to how we reach out to our communities and especially our younger people related to the gospel, even though politically, theologically, socially, there are different perspectives, we would be a lesser church without our tabernacle people. You know, our mission calls us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with all people and pursue holiness of heart and life and to care for both the inner transformation of the heart and the outer transformation of the world that needs a message on unity, not division. That needs a message that is straightforward, no shams, no make-believes, no halfway measures. Because the church has a call today to uplift the uniting love of Christ, grace of Christ, like never, ever before. And to so many in the world who've already written the church off because of our inauthentic ways, may we continue to be a church that attracts people because of our authentic love and our commitment to be co-parents, if you will, in disciple-making for the transformation of the world, to be that beacon, to be that light, to be that city set on a hill, to be the stars that all the world can see and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Amen.